The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with your Holy Spirit helping us to adore your Father, whom you have made our Father, by your obedience and righteousness. Spirit, we bless you and praise you for drawing us out of the grave, out of death and sin and darkness, into new life and and for uniting us to the risen Christ. And Father, we bless you and praise you this morning for sending your only and eternally begotten Son for us. Hear our prayer, bless our meditations, build up your people this morning, that you may be glorified, and that through it your church may be edified. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we're looking this morning at John chapter 3, and maybe the most famous of the passages in John chapter 3, we're looking at John 3.16, I'll just read verses 16 through 21 from the ESV. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, for he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless, bless it and write it on our hearts. Brothers and sisters, When we think of John 3.16, we might not think of a confessional, stout, old-school Calvinist seminary, but we should, because this verse is right at the heart of who we are, what we are, why we're here, what we're doing. But it's frequently been misunderstood and been used for purposes for which it wasn't intended, and it's our goal to look at this text in its original context, according to its original intent. John's writing to a congregation, a Christian congregation. Some people dated around 70, and the circumstances are not entirely clear. Uh, but our Lord Jesus has been ascended for some years, and he's retelling, in his own unique way, the story of Jesus and the message of Jesus with a distinctly evangelistic purpose that people might come to saving faith in Jesus. By the way, if you're wondering, after you graduate, you MDiv students, what it is you should preach in your first series of sermons as you're preaching through 
a book. We hope you'll do things like that. This is a great place to start. This is where I started my pastoral ministry. One of my teachers recommended that I do that. And I keep finding myself coming back to this. In some ways, that sort of grounded and oriented my entire ministry, which is going on 25 years now. When I started, I had hair. I was young. and Now I'm what you see before you. Dilapidated, crippled. Sometimes we ask questions of this text that are not the questions that John is asking. We do that a lot to Scripture, and it's something of which I suppose we should repent. At least we should recognize that we're doing it. If you just look closely at the text, Scripture says, For God so loved thusly, we could say, or God so loved this much. When, when our, our kids were little, we used to play this game. Maybe you uh, play it with your nieces, nephews, or your children, or your grandchildren. You ever play how big? Right? I don't know how long you can play that game, but for a little while you can play that game. How big? So big. This is God's version of how big. How big is God's love? That's at the heart of this passage. So when you come away this morning, that's the thing you should know. That's what God is saying to us this morning. How big is God's love? How vast? How great? How big is God's love? Well, God, how great is God's love? It's as great as our sin. It's as great as the only begotten God, and it's as great as the judgment. How big is God's love? How great is God's love? Well, it's certainly bigger than the caricature that people have of Calvinism, that we Reformed folk don't care about the lost, or that we're disinterested or cold-hearted or or anything of the like, that somehow the God whom we worship is a God who delights in nothing more than sending most of humanity into eternal condemnation. That's not the God that we find in this text, and that's not the God whom we worship. No, the heartbeat of this text is the reality of God's love for sinners. The heartbeat of this text is the reality of God's love for sinners. Because that's what he means when he says, For God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved ton cosmon. What does that mean, cosmos? We translate it world, and then people assume, for a variety of reasons, that John is necessarily speaking in quantitative terms. But he uses this word 78 times in his writings. Something like that. I, I did that count by hand many, many years ago in a con- actual paper concordance. Ask me later, I'll tell you what that is. <laughs> but we know already in, for example, 129, when John the baptizer says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the cosmos, that it probably doesn't mean everyone who ever lived. So that the primary sense of it isn't extensive or quantitative. Maybe we could say it's extensive, but not in the sense in which people often think. We get a clearer sense of what John might mean by cosmos here in 7.17, when Scripture says that the cosmos hates Jesus. You get a sense of the, the spiritual connotation, the ethical connotation. It has a sense of opposition to God and to his kingdom, of spiritual darkness and corruption. 
That's how it's most frequently meant. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 9, he doesn't pray on behalf of the, of the cosmos. So the emphasis is here, and particularly in John three sixteen, not on quantity, but quality. Not on quantity, but quality. The quality of those for whom Jesus came, not the quantity. So we could say it's extensive. It's as, it is as extensive, God's love is as extensive as our sin is worthy of judgment. God's love is as extensive extensive is our sin is worthy of judgment and condemnation. How great is God's love? It's so great that he loved sinners who were worthy of nothing but condemnation. And you get that sense even here in our passage in, uh, in verse 19 as well. That's a better way of reading this. We're the dark, sin-corrupted entity, moral entity, who rejected God the Son when he came into the world. We are those who love darkness rather than light. And we are that sort of people for whom Jesus came. A short way of saying this is that Jesus didn't come for good people, nice people, clean people, orderly people, well-behaved people, or righteous people. He came for those who by inclination and by will and affection and intellect hate God from the very depths of their being. And we are those people. How great is God's love? It's as great as the only begotten God. I don't know what text you're uh, what, what version of the Greek Testament you're looking at this morning, but there's a, a reasonably gar- good argument that in 118, the best reading is only begotten God, monogenes theos. And the committee gives it a B for certainty, and then one of the editors says, well, no, it's a D. But it seems likely, it's not certain, but it seems likely simply because it's the most difficult reading. You can see how the scribes would have amended the text to say the only begotten Son, because that, that's easier, it's smoother, it's a little, a little cleaner, a little less messy, a little less difficult. But it's quite likely that John said the only begotten God, which is an incredible thing to, to, to think about. We could spend the rest of our minutes here, seven or eight minutes, just meditating on that phrase, the only begotten God. For God so loved sinners that he sent his only begotten Son, whom we know to be from 118 and from 1-1, 1 through 3, and everywhere else, to be God the Son, the eternally begotten Son of God, who's never been anything but the Son, who's never been anything but begotten. There's no when, there just is. The one who was in the beginning with the Father. The one who is with God. The one who is God. The one who is the I Am. The one who was at the top of Sinai thundering. The one through whom all things came into being, without whom nothing came into being that has come into being. That one became incarnate. And he was sent. We talk a lot about mission. The root word for mission is to send. 
It's a Latin word, mito, mitera, to send. God the Father sent his son, and the son willingly was sent. The son volunteered from all eternity. Yes, I will go for those people. I will be their mediator. I will be their representative. I will be their federal head. I will obey on their behalf. I will earn their redemption. I will stand in their place. I will be their substitute. Those people whom you gave to me, Father, before the world began in the glory that he had with the Father before the world was from all eternity. I will go. I will be in the womb of a virgin. And I will come down the birth canal in humiliation. And I will suffer every day of my life. Insults, small ones, big ones, humiliation, brutality, For them and for you. How great is God's love? It's as great as God the Son who came into human history in human flesh. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's why I'm a little skeptical, and I understand why people do it when they want to revise our understanding of monogamous in John 1 and elsewhere to refer to mere uniqueness, as if all we know is the typology of Isaac. But we know more than the typology of Isaac. Jesus is both unique. He's certainly that. But he's more than unique. He's unique in a way that Isaac could never be. Isaac was a pointer, but he isn't the definer of what it says, of what it means to say monogamous. Jesus was both unique and eternally begotten, which is why we say what we say in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, God, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of light, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Begotten of the Father before all ages. He's always been begotten. That's the one who came. Isaac's taking, or Abraham's taking of his son up the mountain is a great manifestation of faith and love of God. But God the Son's incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension is the ultimate manifestation of God's love and love for God, but particularly God's love for sinners. How much does God love sinners? God the Son came into human history, the only begotten God. And how great is God's love? It's as great as the judgment. It's as great as the crisis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes or everyone believing on him should not be destroyed or should not, be, should not perish, but that they might have eternal life. And in the context here, John, our Lord Jesus, in the discourse, is thinking about the judgment. Whoever hears my, truly, truly, he says, I say to you, whoever hears my voice and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into crisis, into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That's 
5.24. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler be cast out in 12.31. Jesus came to create a crisis. So I'm using the word in two senses. He, he came to provoke a decision. He came to split, to divide, to create trouble. And he came to save. Because when God judges, there will be a great division. And Jesus came to bear that judgment. What are we, why are we here? What do we have to offer to a lost and dying and dark world? We have to offer deliverance from that judgment, which was executed on God the Son incarnate in his life, yes, but especially at the end of his life on the cross for all those who are in him by grace alone, through faith alone. And everyone who believes in him is delivered from that judgment. There's no initial deliverance, or at least no initial justification and final justification. There is only one justification. We can talk about an initiation of salvation and a consummation of it, to be sure. And Jesus has done the first, and he will do the second. But if you're in Christ, you are now no, no longer under condemnation. The judgment has been passed. The crisis is over. But if you're outside of Christ, then the judgment remains. And it has to be executed. The, the Bible doesn't say that God is love. The Bible says that God is love. It doesn't say that love is God. And his love is extensive. Because there are sinners everywhere. And that gospel needs to be offered to sinners everywhere as freely as it's offered here. We ought to say with open arms and open hands to everyone everywhere, for God so loved sinners that he sent his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the offer that we need to make freely and sincerely and urgently everywhere to everyone, to anyone who will listen, and maybe to those even who won't listen. Because now is the hour. And his love is intensive. He loved us that much. His love is particular. He came for people. He came for particular people whom he's known and loved for all eternity. Those whom the Father gave to him. Whom no one can snatch from his hand. And if you believe in Jesus, you are one of those for whom he came. Who can't be snatched. His love is incarnate in Jesus. His love is saving. It delivers. His love is efficacious. It actually accomplishes. How often do we say, and we'll stop with this, how often do we say to one another, oh, I love you, and then the feeling fades or we're unfaithful. When God says to us in Jesus, I love you in my son, it's as final and trustworthy and reliable as Jesus' blood was shed on the cross. And every drop was a testimony to the finality and the certainty and the trustworthiness of his love. And in case there was any uncertainty about it, he was raised on the third day. And in case there was any uncertainty about that, he was ascended and he is at the right hand of the Father. And so he's vindicated his love and sealed his love 
and declares your love, his love. And he seals it to you every Lord's Day in the proclamation of the gospel and every time we gather together to come to the Lord's table and the minister hands you the cup. As certainly and surely as you see and taste and touch that cup and that bread, that's how surely Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and praise you for the extensiveness and intensiveness of your love for us in Christ Jesus. We bless you and praise you that your love is as great as and greater than our sin and need, and as great as the only begotten God, the Son, who took on our flesh, and as great as and greater than the judgment. O Lord, empower us and fill us with a holy desire to make this known to a lost and dark and needy world. And we bless you and praise you for making it known to us by your grace, through the power of your Spirit, working through your word. Hear our prayer, accept our thanks, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.